are working our way through the book of Hebrews, and we are finishing Hebrews this morning. It only took 58 weeks. I was so glad Tom took time to kind of ask us to just lift our voices in praise. Praise is the way God resets the love of our hearts. It, it's, we sang it this morning, prone to wander, right? Lord, I feel it. That's not just some, think of some really bad sinner, but all of us prone to wander. Praise is one way that God takes our hearts and sets them at true north again, just reorients everything in the affections of our hearts, love and devotion to the Lord. I was thinking of some of the things we sang this morning. I, I'm working, I've like got lots of flaws, but I work hard, even a lot of the courses that I can't reach. I kind of calculate that I can actually sing, physically sing about 30% of, of what we sing in church. I just can't reach the notes. But I try, even when those songs are rolling by, I try not to let myself just blither I, I try to make myself, here's my heart, Lord, we sang this morning. Here's my heart, Lord, taken, seal it. You ever thought about that when you sang it? We have a, uh, my wife felt that the uh, uh, little uh, coffee table that we had in our family room, she told me it was tired. <laughs> I, tables get tired. And so we had a, a new one. It's not tired yet, the new one. It's, but she liked the color and everything else, but she didn't like the way uh, the, it was very s- soft wood, and so she got a sealer, and she, and she sealed it with three or four coats of this clear sealer. And the idea of the sealer is if, if some fool of a husband puts something on the table that's, that's cold a glass with condensation or a, a latte mine always have a little bit of the cream spilling over the sides and if you put it on the table that which isn't table doesn't get into the table that's what sealing does here's my, here's my heart Lord please just seal it Things that aren't of you, they, they don't get in. No entrance. They don't penetrate my life. You know, if you came to church and just thought about that as you said it and made it your prayer, it's life-changing. Some of those words are just tremendous. All right. Tonight we're continuing through Revelation. We'll be finishing that in a couple more weeks. Grace be with all of you is the title of this morning's teaching. The text we all read, and I'm going to read it, 13, 20 to 25. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, that's all... All of that, by the way, is the way our writer identifies the God he's talking about. This is not just anybody's God, the God of Eastern mysticism or the God that lives within all of us according to Oprah. Not that God. 
There's no point setting your attention there. That God doesn't exist. Which, what do you mean when you say God? Oh, I mean, I mean the one that brought Jesus from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, the blood of the eternal covenant. That, that's the God. There's no other gods. Well, what about him? 21. May he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us, in us. This is the essential difference of the new covenant. You don't need to know this. Theologians talk about the old covenant, the law, with its extrinsic work. Don't eat this meat. Don't wear those clothes. Don't do this. Don't sow your field this way. Don't do that. The extrinsic work of the law and the intrinsic in the new covenant. I'll give you a new heart. Put my spirit within you. You'll love my ways. That's the new covenant. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, and he can't even say the name, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And a typical preacher after the amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly... You should know that our brother Timothy has been released. So Timothy has gone through the kind of suffering that Paul went through. And a lot of these uh, Hebrew Christians were being persecuted for their faith. And he wants them to know that Timothy was imprisoned. He's been released. With whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy. You can see the spread of the gospel already. Send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Grace be with all of you. Let's pray. Your word and spirit make grace living and internal and vital. And this is the most important thing we do this morning. And so we pray that you'd come and open our hearts and minds. That grace would be more than just a term we use for a prayer before meals, but your grace would be a deepening experience in our walk day by day. And that we wouldn't abuse it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So it's quite a text. 20 to 25, year and a half or so, when you count some summer Sundays. We've been in Hebrews And if you read these five verses without studying the whole letter to which they're attached, well, you could be forgiven for thinking they were just kind of a a loving sign-off. You know, a polite way of showing affection between a leader and, and the flock of God. But that's not what's happening in this text. And we need to understand that. These aren't just an emotional sort of gush. They're These five verses are really related to the letter preceding them. So so this is different from the way you stick uh, sincerely yours on the close of a letter, despite whatever's in the content of the letter. It's just the way you sign off. Here's why this matters. The God of this God, the God of peace 
introduced in that first verse of our text. He turns out to be the God of a, of a particular kind of peace. And he's very misunderstood in today's church. He's not merely a peaceful God in the sense of being, you know, kind of a, a pacifist who never gets angry or never acts in serious judgment. We know that because, as it turns out, this is a God of peace, and it's somehow attached to this, the blood of the eternal covenant. Now, that's striking, because you don't usually link that word with that word. Our writer wants us to notice this. How often do you naturally link peace and bloodshed? They don't seem to mesh. And, and our writer then is identifying the nature of our atoning God's work. It, it's a peace through the substitutionary judgment of our sin. It's not a peace that's a lack of wrath and judgment. It's a peace that is covered our wrath and judgment. 20 years ago, you'd never have to say that in a church. Of course, this comes as no surprise when you read these words in the light of the entire letter. Because used as either nouns or verbs, used both ways... As nouns or verbs, the words sacrifice and offering have just driven the stream of thought in this letter more than any other terms by this author. This has been one long treaty on a God who commanded the shedding of blood of animals in the Old Covenant. And yes, Brian Zahn is wrong Greg Boyd is wrong. God did command those sacrifices. In the Old Covenant, animals, and in the New Covenant, sheds his own blood for our sins. Please notice the way I said that. God shed his blood for our sins. Where does the Bible say that, Pastor Don? Let me show you. This is a really important verse. Because it identifies who Jesus was, and it identifies what God was doing. Pay careful attention, Paul writes to these leaders. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care, to care for the church of God, which he... Who's that, he? Just grammatically. It's not complicated. Who's the he? Of course. It's not rocket science. The church of God, which he purchased with... Who's... Whose blood is this? You can say it. It's God's blood. That's a striking verse. Notice the way God and his own blood are grammatically bound together in that sentence. God shed his own blood. So God the Son's death on the cross is not as so many quick-tongued, 
irreverent writers love to say, an act of cosmic child abuse. It is the united, loving heart of the Trinitarian Godhead spilling his own blood to divinely self-pay for my sin. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. The theological thinness and irreverence of some current church leaders on this subject is, is tragic and irritating and frightening. There's a logic unfolding in our text. Our writer has just asked his readers to, in uh, 1318, he's asked them to pray for him. So now he wants them to hear, in today's text, he wants them to hear his prayer for them. So here are some of the wrap-up themes I want to deal with this morning. Point number one. When our writer considers the peace of God... He can't do so without tying it to Christ's resurrection from the dead. You see it in verse 20. Now may the God of peace, that's what he's writing about, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, by the, by the blood of the eternal covenant. So he's talking about the God of peace, He links it to the resurrection. And then he thirdly ties it to the blood of the eternal covenant. But that isn't the order in which those events occurred. Jesus died first and shed his blood. And then he rose from the grave. Why does he he mix this up? The peace being bestowed in this benediction isn't mere... Um, inward tranquility. It isn't, this peace isn't just the removal of the stress of circumstances. This is not some kind of monastic peace or, or just the absence of noise or confusion or distraction. Like, you know, you go out on the lake and you sit at the end of the dock with your coffee, peace. And that's beautiful, but it's, that's not what this is about. That's not the kind of peace being described. Somehow, this peace is tied to the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. And even here, our writer pushes us into understanding why the resurrection of Jesus brings peace with God. The resurrection brings peace because it's somehow linked to the blood of the eternal covenant. So he's talking about the God of peace, that's one. He first mentions the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's two. And then he ties that to the blood of the eternal covenant. That's three. So if we don't do, if we don't do some theological connecting of the dots here, then we will have missed the whole message of the letter to the Hebrews. And then we'd have to go back next Sunday to, to part one, and we'd have to go through the whole thing all over again. Consider this. So he ties the peace of God, God of peace, he ties it to the resurrection of Jesus. There are 
Ten different people raised from the dead in the Bible. Did you know that? There are ten. Ten people raised from the dead. Do their resurrections bring me peace with God? What do you think? No. No. And yet, the Apostle Paul will say that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Our text in Hebrews today, it tells us why this is so. Why the resurrection of Jesus is so different. And our writer says it's because his is tied to the blood of the eternal covenant. The last part of verse 20. There is, according to our writer, uh, a covenant. a, A binding promise. That God has made in his redemptive pursuit of mankind. And we've been going through the book of Hebrews. And what we've seen is there were, there were pictures. Imperfect pictures to be sure. Of this blood of the covenant. People had their sins temporarily uh, ignored. Covered. Treated as though they didn't exist. And they would do that by the shed blood of a substitute. This unblemished animal would be brought and shed its blood. Or more accurately have its blood shed. But, but there's a problem. The problem of course was these were just temporary provisions. They required repetition over and over and over again because those animals, once they died, they just stayed dead. You couldn't sacrifice them again. So death still reigned because the actual price of sin was never paid. God just acted as if it were paid. And then came Jesus, God the Son, the one called the Lamb of God. And, and he died, as all those animal sacrifices pictured, he died as the ultimate sacrifice for sin. And this particular sacrifice was never repeated. And that's why, if you have your Bibles, 20, the last part of the verse, that's why his is referred to as the blood of the, what kind of covenant? Eternal covenant. And this is what our writer is getting at in the mention of peace with God being established by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Jesus rose never to die again. So his covenant is an eternal covenant because it brings eternal acceptance and eternal peace with God. So the resurrection of Jesus means I don't have to guess about the effectiveness of my forgiveness in the new covenant. It is still powerfully in force. Jesus rose from the grave because the wages of sin were permanently paid by our redeeming God. Point number two. Because Jesus rose from the dead... We not only have a 
perfect sacrifice for our sins, but we have a living shepherd for our lives. You get that in verse 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. So again, our writer's making a powerful contrast here. He's pointing out this obvious difference. The lamb or goat brought by the sinner for sacrifice, it ceased to have any conscious relationship with the one bringing it. I mean, I guess you can pet a dead lamb if you want. Dead sacrifices simply cease to exist. They, dead sacrifices have a one-time engagement with the sinner, right? They have a one-time engagement with the sinner. And then it's over. Those professing allegiance to Christ, those understanding and trusting in the blood of the eternal covenant, verse 20, our writer says they are not finished with the fruit of that covenant. It's not over. You have a living shepherd, verse 20. And so you and I, we continue to benefit eternally and daily from what Jesus does right now. Those old covenant sacrifices were counted as provisional, but only until your next sin. And you got to bring another sacrifice. This happened every morning, by the way. Every morning. It happened with every sunrise because the atoning provision of yesterday only covered yesterday's sins. Not the ones you're going to commit today. But now, now we have a living high priest and we have a loving shepherd, which means there is, there is ongoing help. We studied these words. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. Since then, let us, that's the logic. Since all of this is true, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. That's, that's your dead goat. <laughs> he really can't care about what you do the next day. He says, that's not what we have. We have a living high priest, not one unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us, so there's since. Since this is true, let's do this. And two, let's do this. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help 
When? Whenever, whenever it's needed. Whenever it's needed. What beautiful words. I hope you never get tired of reading stuff like that. Grace to help in our time of need, 16. This was never the provision of the Old Covenant. This is what enables people like me to hold fast my confession, verse 14. How else could I do it? How else could I do it? There are a thousand voices telling me to quit. There are reminders inward and outward of of all the things that disqualify me for God's continuing grace. You're in the same boat. But I I have a loving shepherd... He's already proven his commitment to me, this shepherd. He's already proven his commitment to me this way. I'm the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And now you start to see why our writer emphasizes the resurrection of Jesus in the establishing of peace with God. If, if, if his own death couldn't stop the son's commitment of grace to me, then nothing else will. Nothing else will. Three. Because Christ lives eternally, he is able to work inwardly in a way no old covenant sacrifice could. It's in the 21st verse. You have to jump into the middle of a sentence. May he, may he, may he. And then he says, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. So God doesn't do this by waving a wand. You know, all religions don't just lead up the mountain to God. this This comes through Jesus Christ, he says. To whom be glory forever and ever. Our writer's almost done. He's wrapping up. But he feels there's something important needing emphasis. And you can see where he's going. He wants to make sure his readers understand that this relationship with our our risen shepherd, it's not a relationship that's just established by self-proclamation. Anyone at all can say he or she is a Christian. Anyone at all can say he or she believes in Jesus. That doesn't do it. Our writer reminds here there is an activity on both ends of the relationship with Jesus. It's not something that I can merely make up. He says he he equips those who are his by faith. He works in them. So there's this distinct difference made in the life. He he steers the whole life in the direction of that which is pleasing in his sight. Like you, I still have a long way to go in having Christ formed in me. But But make no mistake about this. If I'm professing Christ, pleasing him, 
If I'm professing Christ, pleasing him is the number one agenda in my heart. The shepherd only steers my life in one direction, not two. So if I'm still clearly living just to please me, I may say I have a relationship with Jesus, but Jesus knows nothing about it. Do you get what I'm saying, church? It's not a talk relationship. It's a working in relationship. What's worked in is, I I just want to please him. Tell me, tell me what in my life doesn't please Jesus. That's what I want to know the most. Tell me what isn't making Jesus happy. That's what I want to know the most. That's all I care about. How many Christians do you know like that? Our writer says when he's working in your heart, that's the only direction he takes you. It's the only direction he takes you. What? That isn't pleasing to Jesus? Oh, oh, I can't live with that. I can't live with it. Not another minute I can't live with that. That's, church, that's what the new covenant does. It's not a talk covenant. It's a working in covenant. Last point. There's a phrase in there. Point number four. To grow in grace, I am required to bear with discipleship when it feels difficult. Look at that 22nd verse. I appeal to you. I appeal to you, brothers. Bear with my word of exhortation. That's what I want to look at. Bear with my word of exhortation. Whenever, whenever I read a verse like that, this is what I do when I'm, when I'm preparing for teaching, when I'm reading, when I'm studying. When I read a verse like that, I try to put myself in the author's shoes. Please, please, he says, bear with my word of exhortation. What would make him say that? He's done his letter. I mean, the hard work is over. And and he thinks back over what the Holy Spirit has inspired him to write. He feels, as soon as he does that, he thinks over what he's been saying. He he just feels the need to plead with his readers and you and me to please bear with this. What's going on there? I think I know a little bit. Just a little bit. Laboring over these words for... Uh, 58 weeks. It gives one a pretty good impression that there are some really difficult verses in Hebrews. There's sacrificial imagery loaded with bloodshed. There's quotations from like half the books in the Old Testament, and I mean the ones we don't like reading. There are these densely written arguments. Verse after verse after verse with therefore, so forth, because given that, then you have, to, you have to string all of it together and we're used to a text with like nine words in it. There are lists of people long dead 
And then there are about five really stern warning passages that make us all wonder if we're even Christians. I've actually felt, I've actually felt just a little bit of pastoral sympathy for this writer when people would come up to me saying, boy, Pastor Don, how long did you say we're going to be studying Hebrews? I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, bear with my word of exhortation. And then he actually has the nerve to say his word was brief. I won't even try to get away with that. But there is something really important here, and I'm wrapping up with this. So if you've been dozing now, give me about eight minutes of undivided attention, okay? Because this is really important. Here's what I think our writer is saying. It relates to, it relates to every time you're studying a biblical text. Here, corporately, on your own, in a book, in a study The principle is this. Feeding doesn't always happen when you think it's happening. Let let me explain what I mean. There are doctrinal truths that don't land on my life as exciting. We might just as well admit it. There are studies that don't land on my life as feeling positive. And we love positive. If there's anything our culture loves, positive. Everything's got to be positive. No negativity, positive. There are warnings that don't land on our hearts as at all pleasant. And there will be times, many of them, over and over again, when the things you encounter in the Word don't feel immediately practical to your life. So scriptural study isn't always bright and breezy. More videos, please. What do you do then? Now, writer says, you bear with what you're reading. You bear with what you're hearing. Don't stop listening. Let the Holy Spirit be the judge of what you need to hear, not your feelings. Bible study isn't Sesame Street and the Holy Spirit isn't Big Bird. Dig in. Bear with it. So so spiritual application to my heart is, is bearing with. It's like a woman bearing down, giving birth. That's what it feels like. It's labor. All this stuff I've written to you about, bear with it. I have about, I haven't counted this year, but I have about 8,700 books in my library. And it's a learning experience to open up books that I've had for a long, long time. I have always uh, underlined and scribbled in my books and Bibles. They're a mess, actually. And it's a learning experience to go over books long read and see what I underlined 30 years ago. 
Lots of times I wonder, what could I have possibly seen in those words? I mean, they obviously seemed life-changing at the time. I've got stars and circles and lines. And now they, they just look trite. And then I see other things that feel weighty and important now, but obviously didn't matter a hoot to me back then. I just skipped over them. What's your point, Pastor Don? My point is we aren't always the best judges of what we need to know. And our writer wants these readers, these persecuted Jewish believers... And he wants you and he wants me to, to bear with his spirit-inspired words. He, he's trying to tell us, he's trying to tell us we need to care about what he's written, whether we think we need to care about it or not. That's hard to do. That's really hard to do. Hearing the word will always mean concentrating. Here it is. Hearing the word will always mean concentrating on things that don't feel important yet. You have to bear with it. You have to bear with it. This is why people skip church. They don't feel that it is making any difference when they do. They don't skip work. You don't just take a month and not go to work. Because you'll notice right away when you don't get paid. So, so there's, there's an immediate feedback to your neglect. Hear me, church. It is, it is here's, here's why you have to bear with these words. It is never that way with spiritual neglect. It is never that way when you neglect the things of the Spirit. Rarely, if ever, will you feel any immediate effect of spiritual neglect. This is what's on our writer's mind when he says, bear with my word of exhortation. He's saying, never allow this to become less consequential than it actually is. I know you don't think this is relevant. I know you don't think this is life-changing. But it is. You have to bear with it. Never allow the things of the Spirit to become less consequential than they really are because you don't feel any immediate connection. And so our writer is doing what any parent would do when you talk to a young person about the importance of a good education. Or a parent will say, driving the young child to the dentist, you need to go for a checkup I know you don't want to, but, you, but it's important. You don't think it is now, but it is. You don't think going to school is important now, but it is. Or what any pastor would do telling people to come to church regularly on Sunday night. Sorry, that was just too good to pass up. Grace be with you all. Grace be with you all. And everyone said... <laughs> 